Yeah, that's great. I, I think it's such an important topic. I think the overall topic of being vibrant, going back to AI and the world that we're heading towards, I think more than ever, we have to sort of take this on board as almost like an obligation of, of leadership. It's no longer good enough for us just to be doing our job or even just to be doing our job very, very well. We have, we have to be doing our work with vibrancy because this is when the creativity happens, is where the magic is going to happen, is where the seeing around corners is actually going to happen. Uh, and depriving yourself of that because you're just trying to pile through your work is the sure sign that you're on the wrong path. Welcome everyone to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I'm Boris Evenstein, still in Spain. This week, back again with Angus Ridgway. Angus and I made a plan at the beginning of the summer to do a couple of episodes, almost like a mini-series on leadership topics. Kind of a leadership summer school of sorts, but we quickly realized that our angle would be more impressionistic and we'd basically approach topics that just struck us as interesting and maybe a little bit under-discussed. And so we ended up with two episodes so far, episode 11 on leading with character and episode 14 on endings and beginnings. And today, Angus and I wanted to talk about energy management and this concept of personal vibrancy. So <laughs> before we lose everyone right at the beginning, um, we'll spend some time defining what those mean. But maybe Angus, uh, for those of our listeners who haven't had a chance to hear the other two episodes, would you mind introducing yourself with one or two sentences? Yeah, my name's Angus Ridgway. I'm uh, one of the two co-founders at Potential Life, which is a company that helps people be inspired and inspire other people to be inspired. Yeah, Angus, tell us, where do those two concepts uh, and managing energy, perhaps in distinction with managing time and vibrancy, what do those ideas trigger when you hear those words? Why are they important? Yeah, I think it's very important. And I think one of the reasons why it's important is we're all thinking wrong about this. And um, I think it's time that we take a fresh look at this. And here we are in the summer, perfect time for fresh thinking. And the question I'd like to ask is, you know, why is it that we have an energy problem? And I think the reason why we even have an energy problem is because we live in the belief that if we just do a little bit more, then we'll get our work done. Just one more push. And so we're in this sort of model of doing a little bit more. And that model is fundamentally flawed because we're never, ever going to get our work done. And so by trying to do more, all we're doing is, in the end, just tiring ourselves, exhausting ourselves, and not actually solving the thing we set out to solve for in the first place, which was getting on top of our work. So to some extent, we're in, that's why we're in this wrong world uh, and why, although some of the things today will sound obvious like, oh, it's good to sleep well. In fact, it's only important once you understand that we actually need to completely rethink our relationship to the volume of, of work that we have uh, as well. So I think it's, it's really important and it's a good time for us to perhaps also ask some more fundamental questions about, okay, so what do you do about the big questions about getting on top of our work if just by pushing a little bit more isn't also going to get us there? Interesting. So there's indeed lots for us to, uh, to get stuck in. I do have one initial question that your framing triggers right out the gate, which is, isn't there also something fundamentally rewarding about going through the peaks and troughs of a busy schedule. So what I mean is, isn't the very act of somehow making it through the cycle, you know, surviving one more round of whatever it is, weekly business reviews, or just somehow, you know, you're almost hanging on to dear life with a busy calendar and a stretch to do list, but you sort of made it and you've made it to Friday 
and you sort of feel rewarded just in and of itself. So just just sort of like you've done the week, you know, and, and somehow I, I know that we could belittle that, but isn't that actually a lot and that people get a whole bunch of meaning and, and purpose out of just making it through the week? Yeah, and I have. Uh, I guess you have too. I think we've all been there. I think the question is, could it be a lot, lot, lot even better than that? And I think that's the prize that we should be aiming for. You know, I remember in my previous life, I would be getting 7 a.m. flights two or three times a week, which means getting up at 5 a.m. And, and turning up for CEO meetings and just piling through the week and, and thinking that I was thinking that I was on fire because I was doing super, superhuman stuff in terms of the volume of effort being provided. But um, I had a few changes in my life which allowed me to re-engineer this and realize that actually it can be completely different. And one example was instead of taking the 7 a.m. flight on a few occasions, I found myself arriving the night before and just getting a good night's sleep and going and seeing that very same CEO at 9 a.m. that ordinarily I would see already after being on a plane for a couple of hours. And after good night's sleep, I was a different person. You know, we were presenting the same slide deck, but I was daring. I was challenging. I was pushing the limits of the conversation, taking it to places that it would never ordinarily go to. And that sort of magical space was only happening because I was feeling really, really fresh and, and ready for a fight. Uh, and I never knew that that type of space was available to me until I actually found myself in it and then contrasted it with these sort of the kind of satisfying of just working through the week and, and feeling sort of kind of satisfied with that. The, the paradigm that I tried to sketch is you've survived. Congratulations, you get to do another round starting Monday. What you're saying is a very different paradigm. So you're saying, okay, let's move up Maslow's pyramid, at least one or two rungs, and let's rate the quality of the output, not the intensity of the input. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most difficult things to do here is when you, if, if you really acknowledge that you can't do everything and that it's by trying to do everything that we exhaust ourselves, then we're going to have to start saying no to stuff and, and not just no to the stuff that we actually already want to say no to, but we actually have to say no to stuff that we actually want to do. Uh, and that sounds really, really hard, but it's only once you've done that and liberated space in your life, because you've selected a smaller number of things to do that you, that you can start to live in this, sort of much more energized space. Uh, and um, I really like this, you know, you, we've, we've heard of this expression called FOMO. Mm -hmm. um, I'm starting to hear people now talking about JOMO. <laughs> uh, have you heard about this? It's the difference between fear of missing out and the joy of, of missing out. Indeed. And I think there's something very special uh, about just at least aspiring to get to a place in your life where you're saying no to stuff, so you experience JOMO. But then let me put this to you. How can one make sure that this process of saying no doesn't just keep the calendar clear, but also gets you to deliver high quality work? Because the thing that I would immediately be worried about is you say no to lots of opportunity. That's not awesome. That could have downstream effects where some people who really think that the opportunity they're presenting is quite exciting might say, mm, I don't know what Angus is doing. He's on some sort of lifestyle optimization movie. So I don't, I don't know if it's worth coming back with other ideas because he never really says yes. But apart from that, there's also the fact that isn't there a risk that you end up with a yes, decluttered, lower intensity life? But how can you make sure that the things that you do do get delivered with the right level of quality, creativity, intensity. And maybe just a sentence more. I worry that saying yes to a lot of things, just, you know, it's basically the let a thousand flowers bloom approach. So, you, you know, you might not deliver high quality work everywhere, but some things will be good and some bad, but at least you're busy and somehow the whole portfolio is worth it. If you purposefully say no, like it's these five things and not more, how do you make sure you don't end up with just a cushy life, but also with the quality to back up what you did there? 
Yeah, I mean, this is why this is hard. Um, but you said um, decluttered, a decluttered low-intensity life. I think we need to pull that apart because I think decluttered, yes. But nobody ever said that this decluttered life had lower level of intensity. What it has is much more focused, focused intensity. Uh, and the, the uplift comes from, the, from the, 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 the value that comes from being able to focus with intensity. Because uh, we're distracted uh, and we never really get enough into any given thing to really give us that incredible uplift that we would have if we were really focusing. So the prize comes from focus that's only enabled by decluttering. So how what would that look like in practice? So you gave us one example, which is you went outside of the rat race, typical practice of getting on an early morning flight to an early morning meeting, and you would basically create time by saying, okay, you know what, I'll arrive the night before, whatever it is, and feel much better the next day, and much more creative, courageous, you know, forthright, all these things. So what are other examples of managing for energy rather than managing for time, where time management is defined as maximizing output per hour or output per day or whatever metric? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think if we're going to take this conversation into a place that the people at the end of it can feel that they can do something with it, I think maybe we should actually try to offer some tips, tools types of things. And one of the things that I like, just as a sort of technique, is this idea of horizons of recovery. And I actually use this in my life all the time. And You, you could imagine lots of horizons, but I like to limit to three horizons, micro, mezzo, and, and macro. And at any moment in time, we could be more or less recovered on any of these horizons, and we need to ask ourselves, how am I doing? Micro is what happens in the day, such that come 6 p.m., I'm still feeling, let's say, 70% fresh and not 10% fresh compared to what I was like in the morning. What are all the tiny little sneaky little things that can happen to you in the day? You know, a, a 15 second slightly nasty interaction with your boss, maybe a bit passive aggressive, that just has this draining effect on you. And if such a thing happens to you twice or three times in the day, when you get home, you know, you, you're barely able to function. What am, just instead of just sort of allowing that to happen to you, what are you saying? You know, I'm actually going to notice when they happen, and this is affecting my micro recovery. I'm going to navigate around this because I want to be at 70% when I get home. Okay, now we're being practical about this. We're, we're, we're using the power we have to try to influence this. And then there's another horizon, which is just this, the, the mezzo recovery, which is week in, week out, good life habits, sleeping, exercising, eating well, so that you consider yourself to be a reasonably healthy person. And then there's the macro recovery, which is every once in a while, are you really getting to hit the reset button? And it's not good enough just to go on vacation. What you really need to do is properly disconnect. And, and most people in their lives can remember a time when they went away on a, a, a long weekend in some remote place, and it felt like I've been away for three weeks. Uh, because that happened to be one of those times where maybe with certain people, certain disconnection, that it just, it really had that sort of macro re recovery impact. And we need to really feel this, monitor this, and solve for this. For example, You know, I tend to function on that sort of three to four year cycles in my life. And I've been running on a, I'm coming towards the end of a four year cycle. And as this summer came around, I was starting to think, I need, I need some proper, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm losing it a bit on the sort of the, the macro recovery, recovery here. I need to properly disconnect, reset and come September, And I don't know where it's going to go or what's going to happen, but there will be some kind of, of relaunch in my life. So this is Angus in 2023. And then maybe I'll need another one in 2025 or 2027. It's, it's those sorts of things. And I think just by giving a language of horizons, I think can be massively helpful for, for people. The conversation around energy gets a bit 
bungled up with some things that are more long-term and some are more short-term and some are more micro where it's a matter of minutes and it's not clear what you're supposed to be solving for when you're talking about managing for your own personal energy. It's mm -hmm. a wild mix of those things. And of course, they're completely different. I mean, if you think about the macro horizon, it could be what sort of big audacious goal do I want to pursue and put all of my energy in the service of that gives me a strong sense of spiritual or or mental accomplishment or even just joy or what have you or sense of impact and that's a very very different question from should I make sure that my room is cool enough at night so that I sleep well I mean those are totally different things but what I yeah. would say is there is the three-part time horizon which folks should actively think about and then there's probably this taxonomy of the physical the emotional the mental and the spiritual which all contribute to different types of energy and and it's probably helpful to to distinguish those things i mean if you neglect the physical completely we just talked about sleep but it could be other things you know exercises we i think we talked about this or talked about it with another guest on just the the impact exercise can have on your sense of optimism possibility it's kind of inverse correlation to depression and symptoms of the sort so the physical it's its own realm the emotional i thought was very interesting in your example of this slightly prickly conversation with the boss and i wanted to come back to that and just echo something i heard a little while ago um, from a, a former colleague of ours whose work I want to quickly plug here, Caroline Webb, you may remember her, mm. wrote a book called uh, How to Have a Good Day and has a bunch of helpful advice, which we can definitely recommend and link to in the show notes. She she also talked about precisely the situation of you know somehow being pulled down in those many instances where you felt belittled, could be in a meeting, could be in that very boss-employee relationship that you characterized. And Caroline said something interesting, which is that in our process of making meaning and interpreting the situation, we somehow make it so that it feels like it's entirely about us. And it is about us to a certain extent. We're part of the interaction, but it's not only about us. And there may be a million things going on in this person's life in that moment, in that day, that made them to respond with not exactly the right, you know, valence of emotion that would have made you feel better. But that's not on you not entirely anyway and sometimes it helps to just understand <laughs> there's a huge cosmos of things that you are not aware of that are happening for this individual that drive their behavior at any point in time and that helps and there's a bunch of other things we could talk about in the direction of mindfulness and whether one really wants to allow oneself to you know follow that emotion down to where it leads including all the self-talk that will follow it and so on or whether you can create a a sort of reflective moment where you acknowledge that emotion and then park it and detach yourself from it by just sort of labeling it, realizing it, and then allowing yourself to have another thought, a different one. So anyway, those are just two quick thoughts on the physical and the emotional. Mental and spiritual are on much longer time horizons, I suppose. But yeah, which one should we dig into next? What do you think? What's Well, I'm happy to talk about the spiritual one, if only because... For, for, for my, myself, and I think for many people, myself for many years at least, it felt rather inaccessible. Spiritual is one of those slightly strange words. If you're a person of faith, you kind of know what spiritual means. If you're not, then you kind of maybe don't know what to do with it. Uh, and so what really are we talking about here? Uh, and I think one way of making it easier for all to grab hold of this in a way that you know we can actually play with it in practical terms is to refer to it as the why question. What kind of answers are you giving yourself to the why am I doing what I'm doing question? And that's really what the, the, the spiritual space is all about. You know, my sense of purpose, it's, it's why, why am I doing this? And uh, one of the challenges is that we tend to view the why question as abstract and untouchable. Um, I know I don't know what I don't know what the meaning of life is, uh, so don't ask me to think about this. It's a little bit scary and abstract. But actually, there there are many things we can do to practically progress on this question of why, and by doing so, the idea of spiritual health. 
Uh, and the most important thing is to understand that we, we have, I know it's one of these modern words, we have agency, we have power to influence our own answers to our own why questions. By choosing to go out and find meaning in what we're doing, and we tend to have this sense that meaning is somehow there. It's given to us. You know, when I get that promotion, then my life will be great. But actually, we, we can do stuff. We can reframe. We can look for meaning in what we're doing. We can choose to go about our days purposefully. And we can even make a habit out of this, a bit in the sense of building it up as a muscle. Uh, and that's one way of demystifying, de-abstractizing the, 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 the spirituality question. Uh, and then put ourselves in the, or the, the driving seat of our own sort of spiritual health by, by taking that kind of way of framing it. Yeah, I like that framing and would add to it something that I keep coming back to, uh, ironically or otherwise, from the, from the work of Karl Marx, but it just sort of stuck with me because I felt it was so compelling. And um, before I kind of come back to that language, I, I just wanted to bring up Maslow's pyramid of needs one more time because somehow we're getting to that, right? And uh, for those who don't know it or don't have it in, in front of themselves like I do at the moment, let me just quickly walk you through it. Indeed, at the base of the pyramid are those physiological needs, air, water, food, shelter, sleep, etc. So non-negotiable, you have to have that in place to function and to be somehow, I mean, we're talking about survival. One up from that, safety needs, personal security, employment, resources, you could say economic security of its most basic kind, and so on. And then we get into that emotional realm, love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection, social relations. Up from that, esteem, self-esteem in particular, respect, status maybe, etc. recognition, being recognized. But on top of that pyramid, what he put there, um, at least as it's carried over, um, is this idea of self-actualization, the desire to become most of all of what you can be to realize your potential. And now back to Marx, where was I going with this? So he, Marx wrote that there's something distinctly human, this essentially human about our capacity for creative labor. Um, how timely to bring this up in the age of AI, but that's a separate you know, rabbit hole. This capacity for creative labor, I think, is linked to the question of spiritual meaning. Because when you realize something of, of your own creativity by making something, and you feel that that, that thing is, is worthwhile, it expresses your faculties, who you are, it has impact, and other people need it or, or feel it's worthy, that can create a sense of spiritual fulfillment, even though it's not religious in, in any sense. It's, you know, it's material, materialist, if anything. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit, you know, Martin Seligman, who's the founding father of the whole positive psychology movement, in his early research, which is, which is now 20, 25 years ago, he, he talked about different types of uh, well-being and the, the base level was the hedonistic life, so the life of flesh and pleasure, if you like. And then he, one level above this, you have the engaged life. And then above that, you have the, the meaningful life. And that was the initial framing. But a little bit later on, he added a, he had another letter, which was, which was to do with achievement. And achievement in of itself uh, is can be a source of, of well-being, just the act of achieving something. And I think this goes to the idea of self-actualization. Uh, of going through the pain of delivering something and, and then at the end it's done, you know, that creates a sense of well-being. And so I think that is really important as well. So that might bring us to, might bring us back to this idea of focus or of more focus or deeper work. And one thing that I came across that I thought was interesting in this context, let's see what you think, is this idea that Oliver Berkman put forward which is when we face a particularly challenging task and it's meaningful and it requires our concentration and um, it requires that we really apply ourselves, the natural go-to modus would be to say, okay, let me stay up all night. You know, I need to do this. I'll block off the entire weekend and I'll get it done with the right level of quality and focus. 
And what he suggests is that that's actually precisely the wrong attitude. That would be the first paradigm that you talked about, which is you apply more effort to deliver what you what you need. What he's saying is, let's give the thing less time. So he would say, in one of his sort of thought provo provocations, he would say, "What about a four day, a four hour workday? How about that? That's all you get, and then you have to switch off and do other things." And his argument is something like, four hours is long enough to have deep concentration being applied, but it's short enough to give you a a sense of agency over the task. So you're not like a prisoner of the weekend now where you've committed to doing this task. It's four hours and then you'll do something else. So it's within your control. It's small enough to feel less scary. So there's that whole, you know, you eat an elephant in small chunks idea. But it it also focuses the mind. So you will naturally declutter your own thinking and cut straight to the things that matter. Yeah, I think this is really important. And some of the ideas that are behind this are this idea of, sort of time boxing. One is the incredible non-linearity of our productivity. And I love this idea of non-linear productivity spurts. And what we should be striving for is to put us in, ourselves in situations when we feel like we're just spurting with productivity, maybe for 90 minutes because that'll be more than 10 times what you'll get from eight hours. Uh, and, and so this idea of time boxing uh, captures this. It, it's hopefully reducing the likelihood that we'll get distracted within the time box because it's, it's time boxed, which is one protection. And then the other protection is, is the decreasing returns on time. You know, in your sixth and seventh and eighth hour or whatever they are, are going to be very low productivity. And, and so I think this idea of giving yourself a box and using this to, to have an absolute spurt, I think is, is what we should be, the way we should be thinking about organizing our work. And I think one of the things he talks about, which I think is really interesting, is the difference between our to-do list and our today list. Mm. You know, our, and the to-do list is actually important um, because as, as, as David Allen says, our, our minds are made for having ideas, not for holding ideas. And so we should be looking for external storage to hold our ideas. And that's what our to-do nice. to list does for us. Outsource it, put it on a list. You don't want to be trying to remind yourself that you've got something on your list, get it out. So that's brilliant. We should all be using to-do lists and they should be open and as long as they need to be. Uh, now, the thing is a very long to-do list it serves its functionality of sort of externalization of storage, but it's not the best way to organize your effort uh, because it can be very long and very intimidating. Where do I begin? I've got to do everything on my list. They end up doing nothing or a little bit of everything. And so what he says is we need to have next to this open list, which is our to-do list, a closed list, which is our today list. And this is the final list of the only things that we're going to do today. And we can only add new things to that list once we've taken things off that list. And this is the, the forcing tool for focus. Uh, and I, I, it sounds so simple. It's just so powerful. I think everybody should have next to their to-do list, which we celebrate, we should have this other thing, which is our today list. And it's closed. It's locked. We, we, we write it every morning and we don't touch it until the next morning. Uh, and that way we can really do those time boxed moments and, and get close to this idea of absolute energy. So productivity spurts, which I think is so important. Do you think, that, do you think it's important to distinguish between activities and end products, or is that a little overrated that whole, you know, shape your to-do list by defining the end product, not the thing that you're going to keep busy with? Yeah, I don't know, actually. I don't have a strong opinion on this. I, I just know that in my own life, um, I never really quite know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. So being able to define the end product is sometimes a little bit difficult to do. Um, and um, sometimes you just have to give yourself some space to explore and then something good happens. So how on earth would you organize that in terms of end product? I think that would be quite tricky. So Angus, let's imagine... A hypothetical listener who's what's it today monday okay so let's let's imagine hypothetical listener let's call her tina she's on holiday she's on week two 
of a two-week stint in the Mediterranean somewhere. And on Friday, it's time to get back to, you know, fill in the blank European city. And then on Monday, it's back to work. And so Tina's obviously busy trying to get her holiday and maybe that of the family in some sort of structure and order so everybody has a reasonable time. But the little bit of time that is there for reflection. How would you suggest a person like Tina should think about reintegrating herself in September into, you know, busy life, metropolitan city, high intensity work? What sorts of things would it be opportune to think about on the next, you know, five days? Yeah, I can, I can almost share my own life experience here. And Please. do we, I mean, do people dare to sleep enough? I'd like to put that out there. Uh, one of the great joys for me uh, is, and I'm in a hot country now in Spain, as you are, everybody's doing siesta. I can tell you, if, if you, if you sleep loads in a hot environment for a week or 10 days, including siesta after lunch, and then, you know, don't, don't go to bed too late and just wake up naturally. After four or five, six, seven days of this, I at least feel completely different. Uh, and before I even start to think about where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do in September, I almost want to create this foundation of physical health. It's just about sleep. So that would be my first recommendation. Of course, this is, can be tricky if you've got kids running around and so on. I mean, there are t plenty of times in life where that's easy to say, but actually quite difficult to do. But, you know, I guess we can all at least be aware of this and try the best. The other, the other little story I'd share is my last, last year, my wife was, um, he, he, we were in Spain, same place, same, same time of year. And my wife said, I don't want to go back to work this time around. And I said, Nobody wants to go back to work. That's the whole point of vacations. You know, you know, give yourself a couple of weeks and then you'll be back. She goes, no, I can feel it. And I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to go back. And I thought this was just the voice of somebody going through the recovery process. Mm -hmm. But actually it was something, actually it was somebody going through the recovery process, but it's something much more than that. It was somebody realizing something and taking ownership for something that is actually time for change. And what my wife was doing was listening to her emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical energy levels and, and feeling the, the, the sort of imbalance. And then my wife took control and made changes. Um, I think there's a huge lesson for everybody in that story of listen to what your body is telling you. you know, we've only got one life and there's so many signals out there and we should really be listening to them. So there's one about the, the physical and maybe the you know smallest time horizon. Then there's this bigger one, right? Which is back to Artina, who's got five more days of reflection. So one task now is to you know open the antenna to be receptive to precisely these kinds of signals. Isn't there also this process? I can't remember what the scientific name for it is, but there's something something happening in the subconscious when you disconnect from your daily cognitive load for a bit. And it seems like you're coasting, you're, I don't know, reading novels or scanning social media or reading, I don't know what, magazines, if those things still exist. So, so you're not really doing anything cognitively complex by your own standards of work. But your subconscious is working away and it's kind of digesting things. And then it will surface what truly matters. So it will surface, hey, this feels wrong. Like this feels unresolved. Could be a person, could be a topic, could be a goal you set, could be a strategy that you're unsure of. So just by gestating in the background, it will give you a signal on what's truly meaningful. What do you make of that? Yeah, th this is really important. And I think this is why we need these moments of recovery, because it, it's, it's, the, it's during these moments that the, these low frequency signals actually, we can actually hear their voice. Uh, and these are the important ones. This is coming back to the spiritual side, where we can get some guidance on what actually matters to us. Because uh, in the noise of daily life, how on earth do, do we, can we hope to process this? There are just so many signals firing at us from so many different directions. This is perhaps the one moment in the year when all of the noise goes down. And the only noise that's left 
is the noise that's our noise. So you've recharged, you come back, you're full of energy and optimism. Can we talk about that quality? Like, what is it like being vibrant? Let's talk about that. We, we, we set out to discuss vibrancy at the beginning of this conversation. What does it mean? What does it do? What's, is it worth it? Is it overrated? I mean, for example, people often state that charisma is overrated for example, and we should rather just pay attention to what people actually deliver and concretely say, let's say. What, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, and there's lots of play, ways we can take this. I think one important just reality for us to take on board is that our energy levels are contagious to others. And this is actually a biological fact. With mirror neurons, this has been established now how the energy of one person actually literally affects the energy of others. What we tend not to do as leaders is actually fully take this on board when we think about us as leaders. And I, I have my own experience of this. I used to work a lot in, in grocery stores in supermarkets. And I, typically what I'd be doing would be interviewing a store manager at the back of the store. Uh, and at the, these, these are large supermarkets and at the end of the meeting the store manager would escort me to the store entrance and this maybe take 90 seconds to walk me out of the store and in most cases the store manager would be patting people on the back noticing that somebody was just back from vacation or somebody's mother had been ill and you would have a hundred pairs of eyes in this store looking up and lighting up as the manager walked through I thought this was normal. It looks, it was nice. Until I visited some other stores where at the end of the meeting, the manager only had one thing in mind. The, the, his or her next meeting was starting in 90 seconds and he or she needed to get me out fast. And so I, would, I got frog, essentially frog demand out of the store. <laughs> and no no patting on back no nothing and um and what you had was a hundred pairs of eyes just down stacking shelves and a totally different vibe in the store and that was when it was brought home to me in a very very sort of stark manner just how much our energy levels are infectious to others and as leaders boy it really really matters and so we we need to of course, we, need, we, we can't be faking this energy thing. And that's actually an interesting conversation about sort of you know, at what point does it become, is there a danger of being toxically positive? Yeah. We can go there in a second maybe. But, but before we go there, just, just acknowledging that we have to have that energy if we're going to be giving it as a gift to others because it is so infectious. Yeah. It's infectious in that immediate one-to-one -one or one-to-many setup, but there's also something, how shall I put this, slightly cosmic going on in the sense that if you're in that positive energy space, somehow it unexplicably seems to attract opportunities, interest. So new things arise, things become suddenly much more doable. Others also rise and are suddenly much more capable of solving problems they would have otherwise maybe brought to you. So there's something on top of that that's happening. It's almost like the universe conspires around this energy to deliver more goodness. And, you know, one might add that the converse is probably also true. You know, what, what, what do they say? If it's, if it's raining, then it's pouring or something like that. You know, once it really gets going, then all the bad things start to attract more bad things. So what do we do with yeah. this information? Like, what's the so what? Well, I mean, I remember in my McKinsey uh, days, working late, you know, I might be late in the office. And, you know, in, I might have, at the time, several teams beavering away late at night, each in their own team room. And it's like 10, 11 p.m. and it's time to go home. And the question is, do I put my head around the door of each team? Uh, and maybe, let's say, there's 10 of them, which means I won't, I won't be home until maybe midnight. So how do you choose which doors to put your head around? And I noticed one thing. The, the rooms that are full of laughter and giggling and fun and having a whale of time 
You can leave them. It's just fine. The rooms that are sitting in dead silence, there's something not working. You know, maybe the, the manager said something nasty to the June and everybody's angry at the manager, but it's nobody's there to speak up and what have you. Then you know you, you've got to go and take some, some leadership action to try and resolve this and, and let them also have an, an energized environment. So I often used to use this as almost like a barometer for knowing where to allocate my own leadership energy as, as a consequence. Yeah. I mean, of course, what we then uh, have to be quite mindful of is when we make an appearance, that the purpose of the appearance is also very clear, right? So if we double down on the problem and say, yeah, that is really messed up, we now need to, you know, all get our pencils out and really work this out tonight. You know, yeah. you might ask, um, am I, you know, adding to the anxiety and uncertainty or am I reducing it somehow? Always a good question anyway to put. Yeah, yeah. So you, you were about to say something a little more personal a minute ago, as we're talking about your own, you know, you, you might be on your, you know, metaphorical week two of, of, of your holiday. So, so how do you spend your days now, the, the next few before you re-enter into, you know, potential life, your advisory practice, the products that you develop, you know, the next set of strategies that you, you know, speak through with your partner and co-founder? Like, how's Angus using that moment of, you know, unwind? Yeah, it's it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's. I'm very happy to share on this, and it's it's a it's a non-deterministic path. So at the beginning of the summer, all I knew was that I was feeling quite deeply tired, and I'd come feeling like I had come to the end of something, the end of a phase, and not sure that I, I was feeling full of appetite just to carry on in the same phase. So I was acknowledging the existence of a challenge, if you like, an opportunity, if you like. Um, and I said, it's time for some recovery. So the first thing with my wife, we went off to, to the north of Iceland for 10 days. I thought, I'm, I'm going to do the sort of textbook disconnect. I'm going to go hiking. It's going to be cold and wet and windy, and that'll have a, a, a jolting effect. It was a fantastic vacation, but I got back from it, but I was still feeling the same, unresolved. And so it's kind of, mm, it's going to take a bit more than just the sort of cliched uh, hiking holiday in, in Iceland. Um, and then I realized, you know, sometimes you just have to give a little bit of time to time. And so I got to Spain, been here a couple of weeks now, doing a lot of sleeping, and just starting to get excited about the thought of getting back into something again. I don't know what it is. I've, got, I've still got some designing to do, but I've got my, so is it my mojo or my appetite back, my willingness to re-engage? I can just feel it. And what's interesting about this is I don't think you can specify the, the, the time that this takes or even fully the process that's required to get there. I think the best we can hope to do is just acknowledge that sometimes we have to give us, gives ourselves some space for proper deep recovery. And then we will at some point, hopefully, start to feel ourselves coming out of it a little bit. And I'm there now. And so now all of a sudden I'm sort of starting to buzz with energy again and reaching out to people and saying, should we try that? And Again, no, nothing's been designed yet, but the beginning of the design process is, is happening. And, uh, you know, give me another two, three weeks, and then, I don't know, but probably something, something good will have happened. Hmm. Um, but what struck me was the cliched vacation, actually, in my case, wasn't the thing that did it. actually needed more than, more than that. One of the practical things that I found myself doing, um, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's correlated to age or if it's just something that seems to have started to work, but on the subject of these little micro recoveries during the day, one thing that, that I found myself starting to play around with was during, during COVID, when there was a lot of work from home, I found that it would somehow be possible during even a very busy day to find 10 minutes for a little guided meditation session. And that would be possible even if there was just a sliver of a 30-minute pause between, you know, back-to-back -back meetings that was originally put in there for some, you know, bio breaks and, 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 well, literally, you know, 
bio break, but then also consumption of food, re, you know, re, re, replenishing. So the 10 minutes could be found. And then I realized that the 10 minutes of mindfulness combined with a, what was de facto a very short nap, a kind of micro nap, would, would, would have just an outsized impact on the rest of the day. And at first, my, my go-to mode was to push through and then to caffeinate through, just have lots of coffees and somehow muscle through the day. But concentration waned and energy waned and that infectious magical thing that we talked about where even at a distance, even through a screen, you could still somehow energize other people that, that also waned. But with even 10 minutes of guided meditation slash calming down, I mean, you could call it a micro sleep. It's, it's, it's something in between, I guess you're still paying attention to the words that you're hearing but you're also drifting off and then 10 minutes later you're back and there's a little gong sound and you're back and you're and it takes like maybe a minute or two to remove the grogginess but then the rest of the day was just so much better yeah and i found that those things i just kept naturally coming back to that you know you know when there when, when something works it, it's sort of like you don't have to remind yourself of doing it you sort of naturally come back mm -hmm. to that and that's a, a new habit and quite a valuable one even for what it is which is a tiny intervention I think it's incredibly it's incredibly good tip. Um, I think Picasso said, you know, I can take a siesta in the time it takes to drop a knife on the floor uh, mm. to really <laughs> drive home this idea that this is micro micro stuff that we're talking about here, but the benefit can be absolutely huge. And you don't actually need to sleep. You can just relax a little bit, just breathe a bit, just let your mind wander and then you shake yourself out of it and feel really quite different. Uh, and I think this is something that uh, we, we really should be looking at, at doing uh, in our lives for sure. Maybe a couple more of these micro tips, you know, one or two things that I was thinking about um, that we could recommend folks as they sort of think about how they re-enter the Earth stratosphere back from Planet Holiday. Um, the, the one thing I really liked and that seems to work for me is this concept of strategic relocation. And it's a bit of a pompous way of saying that if you get stuck in a rut, you know, just change the wallpaper, you know, go to change the, the physical setup. But it's it's somehow, it's a little deeper, I think, than, than that. So there is this whole tradition of cognitive behavioral therapy and psychology where it gets you to just adopt certain behaviors and just sort of force execute them without overthinking them or interpreting what they do at a sort of subconscious level. So there's no discourse around it. It's literally like, walk this way, take X number of steps, put yourself in this situation, use this kind of lighting, not that kind of lighting. And then the effects will be sort of felt on the body and then by extension on the mind and you'll have a different inner dialogue going on. And I find that really, really works. So just physical relocation to a different space can re-energize a task, can make something that felt deeply problematic in physical space A, feel totally okay in physical space b and then there are some if you, if you go even deeper you can unpack the qualities that create the ambiance right so it can be the quality of your chair it can be the lighting it can be how much space physically you have on your desk versus being cluttered and confronted with a thousand and one to-do lists that are as you say open and open-ended so what, what do you make of those the yeah, things totally. that seem like hacks no i think well i mean if anybody has uh, suffered from uh, even very minor insomnia, uh, it's quite clear that the thing to do if you're tossing and turning and in bed and stuff going around around it is get up, go downstairs, make a cup of tea, read a book, do what you describe, which I think is called a strategic relocate uh, for 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever, and then go back to bed and you'll fall asleep, mostly. Um, it's just so incredibly powerful. And I, th I think uh, it's a great idea. Yeah. I got an advice from the person that I uh, get coached by for uh, physical training and exercise, who was also on one of the podcasts, Max Barty, um, I think one of the earlier episodes. And, and Max uh, recommended to, to me to try out a supplement called taurine, which we might all know from Red Bull. And combined with caffeine, uh, taurine has the effect of, uh, yeah, well, increasing your, your energy, but not in the way that you want uh, just prior to sleep. So, the, so, so it's animating. 
But if it's just consumed like this without any other additional stimulant, then it has a calming effect. And indeed, I mean, obviously, this is not a medical podcast. Uh, it's at the boundaries of what we're really talking about. So I would recommend folks contact their you know, physician or health advisor. But for me personally, using taurine as a supplement has just done miracles for sleep and has created this like amazing level of calm uh, and has, uh, I would say, fundamentally increased the level of recharge that I would get out of it. Yeah, that's great. I, I think it's such an important topic. I think the overall topic of being vibrant, going back to AI and the world that we're heading towards, I think more than ever, we have to sort of take this on board as almost like an obligation of, of leadership. It's no longer good enough for us just to be doing our job or even just to be doing our job very, very well. We have, we have to be doing our work with vibrancy. Because this is when the creativity happens, it's where the magic is going to happen, it's where the seeing around corners is actually going to happen. Uh, and depriving yourself of that because you're just trying to pile through your work is the sure sign that you're on the wrong path. Um, and so I think if there's one message, as people are probably winding down a bit in the summer, is as we all head back to work with all of our good intentions, give yourselves two or three months, maybe until the end of your break, look back and say, did I go back into piling through mode? In which case I need to have another think. Or do I feel like I was able to sustain this vibrant existence where I had the creativity, the recovery, the, the contagious energy, uh, if so, then you're on a good path. Excellent. Great advice. Angus, maybe we wrap it up here. Thank you once again for a vibrant conversation, no less. I hope that you have another, you know, a couple of lovely days in Spain. And who knows, we'll speak soon, no doubt, maybe in yeah. this location and maybe in a very a strategically relocated one. <laughs> <laughs> With pleasure. So is it Thank good. you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com.